We're going to read from uh, Nehemiah starting at the very end of chapter 8 and going through chapter 9. And I would suggest this, and matter of fact, I would encourage you all to do this. Forget about the version you have in your Bible right now, and I wouldn't even try to follow it. I'm reading from actually one of my wife's uh, Bibles right now because it has large print. And, uh, and rather than try to follow, I'd ask you to do this. If you want, close your eyes and just focus on the scripture itself. Picture what's taking place because what we're seeing here is Ezra is reading the law, uh, the book of the law to, to the Israelites and recognizing what has happened over a period of time. And it's kind of analogous in many ways to where we are right now. So if you will, just listen to it and uh, I will try not to stumble. Verse 18, chapter 8. Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of the festival. Then on October 15th, they held a solemn assembly as the law of Moses required. On October 31st, the people returned from another observance. This time they fasted and dressed in sackcloth and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. The book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them for about three hours. Then for three hours, more hours, they took turns confessing their sins and worshiping the Lord their God. Some of the Levites were standing on the stairs crying out to the Lord their God. Then the leaders of the Levites called out to the people, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. Then they continued, Praise his glorious name. It is far greater than we can think or say. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve and give life to everything. And all the angels of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. When he had proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perserites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. You saw the sufferings and sorrows of ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his servants, and all his people. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians were treating them. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You divided the sea for your people so that they could walk through on dry land. And then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea. They sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way. You came down on 
Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and instructions that were just and laws and commands that were true. You instructed them concerning the laws of your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them through Moses, your servant, to obey all commands, laws, and instructions. You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. But our ancestors were proud and stubborn lot, and they refused to obey your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they rebelled and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, and full of unfailing love and mercy. You did not abandon them. Even though they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They sinned and committed terrible blasphemies. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of clouds still led them forward by day. The pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. And you did not stop giving them bread from the heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing in all that time. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Then you helped our ancestors conquer great kingdoms and many nations. And you placed your people in every corner of the land. They completely took over the land of King Sihon of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Bashan. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even the kings of the Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. Your people could deal with them as they pleased. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took over houses full of good things with cisterns already dug and vineyards and olive groves and orchards in abundance. So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. But despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They threw away your law. They killed the prophets who encouraged them to return, and they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you, and you heard from heaven. In great mercy, you sent them deliverers who rescued them from their enemies. But when all was going well, your people turned to sin again. And once more, you let the enemies conquer them. And whenever your people cried out to you for help, you listened once more from heaven. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them repeatedly. You warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations by which 
People will find life if they only if they obey. They stubbornly turn their backs on you and refuse to listen. In your love, you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit, who through the prophets warned them about their sin. But still they wouldn't listen. So once again, you allowed the pagan inhabitants of the land to conquer them. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. And now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let all the hardships we have suffered be as nothing to you. Great trouble has come upon us, upon our kings and princes and priests and prophets and ancestors from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. Every time you punished us, you were being just. We have sinned greatly, and you gave us only what we deserved. Our kings, princes, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and solemn warnings. Even while they had their own kingdoms, they did not serve you, even though you showered your goodness on them. You gave them a large, fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now today, we are slaves here in a land of plenty that you gave to our ancestors. We are slaves among all this abundance. The lush produce of the land piles up in the hands of the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They have power over us and our cattle. We serve them at their pleasure. We are in great misery. Amen. Amen. Well, if that wasn't one of the best dramatic renditions of scripture I've heard in a while, I don't know. Alliance Bible Church where Shakespeare meets scripture. All right. That was awesome. Thank you, Samuel. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the freedom to gather as a people before you to call out and proclaim your glory, to share your word, to encourage one another. Lord, I pray for all those who are ill or who are afraid that they will become ill from the coronavirus. Lord, let your hand be upon them, Lord. We ask that you would do great healings throughout this time of, of plague in the land, that you would encourage your people through your protective hand, that you would show your love and shower your love upon us, and that you would turn our nation back to you. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we pick up today in Nehemiah 9. Last week, we, had, we uh, discussed there was a great celebration that happened in the city. They had recently rebuilt their walls, and they gathered together as a people to celebrate that. And as they started to read the law during this celebration, they were convicted of their sin. However, because of their great wins that they had in their community, initially reading God's word again was, a time, was that time of celebration, and they rejoiced and celebrated a feast. But... Following that time of celebration came a time of mourning and repentance. 
I'm going to, uh, back in chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Day by day, from the first day to the last, they led from the, read from the book of the law, kept the feast for seven days. On, a, on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly, according to the rule. Now, on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled in fasting and sackcloth with earth on their heads, right? My first point today is that the community recognized that they were far from God. The community recognized they were far from God. Years of spiritual complacence regarding the things of God had led to Israel ultimately being taken into captivity by another nation. God used this evil nation to help restore Israel to rightful worship. He had let them go for a a period of time where they weren't worshiping him well, and he extended them grace. But when the nation's worship and spiritual eyes became increasingly turned away from God, he allowed them to fall into a difficult time in order to realize that all the blessings they received and enjoyed were actually directly from his hand. We pick up scripture now seeing that a revival is brewing and the people have gathered together as a community for a special time of prayer, including self-examination, repentance, and confession. That word solemn assembly appears as such in the ESV, NASB, and NLT. And if you're old school and read the New King James Version, it's actually sacred assembly. So you'll see sometimes when people are referring to this event, They use similar language, but it's a little bit different. It's the same word that's used in Joel and Leviticus. The the concept of sacred assembly, though, is more developed in the books of Joel and Nehemiah. The prophet Joel describes a situation in which the Jewish nation finds itself at odds because of God, because of their sin, right? Repetitive theme in Scripture, at odds with God because of your sin, And an invasion of locusts took away from Israel their welfare and prosperity. Joel 1.4, if you guys are looking for scripture references. Without food, they're destined to suffering and misery, and all joy is gone. Even worship is cut off from the community. This happened because Israel left the Lord, but now God is commanding them to return. Just for a reference, I'll read Joel chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Mourning for the land, gird yourself and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth. You who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather all the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to God. In case you were thinking times weren't desperate, that this was a nice sort of festive occasion, those verses paint a completely different picture. The last verse, of course, telling Israel to cry out to the Lord, and cry out they do. Because the Lord is gracious and kind, he's willing to meet 
the people's needs when they humbly respond to his loving and chastisement. To paint a picture of what some of these things, events were like, sackcloth was a dark, coarse material. Some historians describe it as a coat made of hair. A coat made of hair. If you can imagine like a, like a, a brush made out of horse hair, that really coarse, uncomfortable material, they would actually intentionally clothe themselves in material like this, or maybe kind of like a burlap bag, intentionally clothe themselves in this to give themselves a constant state of uncomfortability. They didn't want to be in their sin and be wrong before God or in a state of misery and be wearing comfortable clothes to relax that sense of uncomfortability. It says also here that they put dust or dirt or earth on their head as a sign of humility and a disregard of their outward appearance. I don't know about you, it's been a long time since I had mud intentionally on my head. I mean, I'd have to be at least as old as Bryce Rossing to have cut that stuff out and looked to a whole new sense of appearance. Israel was a largely patriarchal culture, so the fact that the revered men in the community would dress up like this, disregard how they looked. I mean, think of our our mayors, our congressmen, our senators, our leaders of the community. I mean, don't picture this in your mind. That's a bad way to go with this. But like actually wearing burlap bags or like coats made out of uncomfortable hair, mud on their face, it would be an undignified sight indeed and certainly send a message Israel is commanded to come before God in a time of fasting, weeping, and consecration for everyone, including the young children and young couples ready to marry. They're asked to put aside their personal joys and comforts for the sake of the community. We find that second example of sacred assembly here in Nehemiah as the people gather together for a time of fasting and repentance. From our work, it's vital church, we intentionally oftentimes will recommend a sacred assembly for a community. In modern times, we see reasons for sacred assemblies such as this. When, when church conflict runs deep, when there's an ongoing feud, when there's spiritual insensitivity has become the norm for the church, when there's sins of a public nature like adultery, misuse or abuse of power, or misappropriation of monies, when souls or parts are spiritually barren and the relationship with God is stale, when people in a church give themselves over to hobbies at the expense of being responsible or give themselves over to responsibility at the expense of healthy, important relationships, when people in a congregation regularly use threats or manipulation to get their way or when a number of people medicate through drugs, alcohol, exercise, or the like. When people who've been Christians for years fail to practice even the most basic spiritual disciplines, or when the people of God tend to turn to temporal things for joy and security more than they do to God, these would all be reasons to draw your community into sacred assembly. In these verses, Israel does that. They start to do that with a public display of mourning through sackcloth, fasting, and putting earth on their heads. Just as a little aside, Vital Church doesn't necessarily recommend the mud thing. I mean, that should be internal at this point. Um, 
In Israel, verse 2, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. So they were there confessing not only their own sins, but the fact that this sin had gone on for a long period of time. And as the Bible recognizes, families and even communities can pass sins down and bad habits down to one another. We recognize this today with things like alcoholism and abuse where there was a a member of the family generations ago who either drank too much or was too angry and hurt some of the kids and the kids learned that as their coping mechanism and, and that's how they would act out and they passed it on to their own kids. It says verse three, Israel, the nation of Israel stood up in their place and read from the book of the law and the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, a quarter of the day, and for another quarter they made confession and worshiped before the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood a bunch of guys, and they cried out in a loud voice to the Lord their God. My second point today, spiritual renewal started with God's word. Spiritual renewal started with God's word. There was a genuine spiritual renewal in this community, and it was prompted by the public reading and understanding of God's Word. True renewal has to start with a consciousness of sin in reference to the Word of God. Not, not like an understanding of how man does good or does not do good according to man's language, because a lot of us may be good people in the sight of the community. We may pay our taxes. We may help out others. We may be nice neighbors. But at the end of the day, we're all sinners and have things to repent to, to the God of heaven and earth. The sin is not defined by man as just being something evil or offensive. It doesn't change with the time, and it's not a shifting goalpost. It's established by God's word. And here stood the nation of Israel, it said, for a quarter of the day reading the word aloud. It's quite interesting over the last month, true story, we've had a couple discussions about how long we can read scripture up front in an age where we're so ADD and focused on our computers and our laptops and our TVs and our Twitters and everything else, and those are true concerns that we want to be aware of. It's interesting to note that Israel took hour upon hour reading the word aloud, and then took another probably three to four hour stretch, right, a quarter of the day to confess and worship. So today, in honor of that, we're going to preach for three and a half. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to preach for three and a half hours. That would be too long. Can you imagine, though, six-hour church session? Six-hour church session. Looking back, it's amazing to see the things that God does through Scripture. But when you trace some of the roots of that, it's interesting. You can see why God would honor these folks. Six hours. um, Here's what we're going to do with this scripture for today. We're going to kind of read through parts of their repentance, and we're going to take out a couple themes from the things that they're talking about and see how they apply to our community. It says, verse 5, the Levites, a couple of guys, said, stand up 
and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven and and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abram. It's going to get deep here in a second. You found his heart faithful for you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. The first thing that Israel starts to do as they're reading from the law is they recognize God's promises and they call upon his covenant. Now it's really interesting because between those two parties, God and Israel, it's Israel who's broken the covenant, God being faithful and just and true, and Israel going, oops, yeah, I want to go back to that promise you made in the beginning. That was the good place to be. It took for God to recreate much of their town and their work and their lives again and for them to establish fellowship and community to just get a taste of what God promised, for them to realize how far outside of the promise that they were. I mean, an analogy would be like like going to the gym, maybe. Like if you go to the gym every day, you like going to the gym, but if you haven't been there in a long time, it sounds really awkward and awful. But yet, you'd probably get a lot out of going to the gym. If it, if it sounds that awful, it's probably like going to do something for you. Israel's kind of in a, in a similar scenario. That covenant with God, even just a little bit ago, sounded awful. It wasn't something they were pursuing. Nehemiah stepped in and said, let's move in that direction. They got their town back. They got their community back. They realized... Wow, now that we've got some of the physical trappings, this spiritual stuff is still far away. And if just some of the physical trappings of success are so glorious, we want to go after it all. We want it all, God. Show it to us. As part of repentance and reconciliation, Israel is referencing the promised covenant that was given to them. God's special covenants with his people are central themes of the Bible. The covenants motivate obedience, instill faith, and assure provision for the nation. Check this out. This passage is from Genesis 15, verse 18 through 21. That day the Lord made a a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates and the land of the... Canaanites, Kezanites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. A ton of those nations are crossed over between the passages. Quite literally, they're reading the law going back to the covenant that God made Abraham and said, Lord, we want this. We want your promises. We're willing to give our obedience for it. We want our heart restored to you, O God. Israel did not see God as an impersonal force or a distant deity that did not communicate with human beings. They saw God of the Bible as an performing acts in history and having spoken to mankind, even Old Testament stuff. Verse 9, it says, And I saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people in the land, for you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers. 
And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by pillar of fire at night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down from Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven, and you gave rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of a rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land and you swore to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. My third, my next point today is that now this nation was learning for their sin. They had learned from their sin. The Levites were praying to God, describing, check this out, their own ingratitude, their own rebellion, their own willful disregard for God's law, which characterized those who had settled in the land. God used the evil around them to chasten them back into a sense of obedience, and he removed the physical pleasures from their life so that they wouldn't get caught up in those and miss the true pleasure of knowing God Almighty. Let these scriptures be a warning to us, too. With all the busyness of life, it would be easy to allow for the events of every day to consume us. It talks in the Old Testament how, how Israel at times had fallen in love with the land. They didn't even have a fraction of the cool stuff we have. I mean, think about it. Cars, iPhones, roller coasters, microwave meals, maybe not, but I mean... There's a lot of stuff today that we could get wrapped up in, in our own convenience, in our own sense of self-pleasure, in our own sense of daily comfort that could draw us out of the uncomfortable place of having to live in repentance before God. Israel lived out this unholy spiritual cycle. They were afflicted. God would redeem them. They would rebel. So then they would be afflicted. And then they would cry out, and God would redeem them, and then they would rebel, and then they would be afflicted, and then on and on and on and on. It seems like they would learn, but in all honesty, they're not all that different from you or from me, are they? But the sin and the confusion is what got them to this place. When they repented, God graciously forgave them. They would walk rightly before him, and before long, that cycle of apostasy and oppression would be repeated. The nation repeatedly presented, was presented with the reality that their disobedience simply robbed them of what was God's best. It was only on account of God's grace and compassion that they weren't utterly consumed by the penalty of their own wrongdoing to begin. God's people, as God's people, we're to remember what God's done for us. And when we don't do it, it's a recipe for disaster. Deuteronomy 
chapter 4, 29b starts with, You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all of your heart and all of your soul. When you are in tribulation and these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you nor destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he has sworn to them. And in spite of all this, God has given to Israel the people of all that God has given to the people of Israel, the people of Israel have constantly turned away from him. They would return to their slavery over and over again. Verse 17 goes on, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves that golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night for the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. My next point is that Israel remembered God's faithfulness. Israel remembered God's faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is so true and been proved so many times over throughout the nation of Israel's history and throughout our own lives. Hebrews 6.18 says, God cannot lie, nor can he break an unconditional promise that he says he will fulfill. Every covenant that he made, he has kept. Can that be said about anybody else that you know? Every promise or foretelling has or will come true. Testimony after testimony of God's faithfulness is certainly found in the Bible and in the testimonies of people today. Deuteronomy 7.9 says it like this. says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. The Sabbath and bread from heaven are mentioned in the context of God's faithfulness. Yet, the glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin done by man has ever made him unfaithful. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. God is has revealed and is constantly revealing his character, his love, his provision to us. And it's interesting that even in this little glimpse of scripture, we can even see images of the concept of the Trinity. You know, it's not really hashed out all that well in the Old Testament, but it says here in verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold manna from their mouth. God is not a hidden God, unreachable by us. But he's a God who has a hand on our life and is speaking to us through our winds and through our challenges. Hudson Taylor said this, Many Christians estimate difficulty in the light of their own resources, and thus they attempt very little, and they always fail. All spiritual giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power and presence to be with them. 
Verse 21, it says, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, O God. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. They took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars in heaven. You brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants, the Canaanites, and gave them into their land with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured and fortified cities and a rich land, took possession of the houses and all good things, cisterns already honed, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees, and abundance. And so they ate, were filled, and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness." And yet, verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them to turn back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven according to your great mercies. And you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of of the enemy. One of the main messages here is that God gave beyond Israel's ability to provide for themselves. Throughout this passage, it talks about all God gives in victories and land and fruit trees and vineyards and wells already honed. That's a pattern throughout Scripture. God blessing his people abundantly, yet they complain and want more and rebel. Today, we have an acronym for stuff like that. One of them is FOBO, right? fear of better options. Israel's like, hey God, that's really cool that you gave us, but you know, I don't want to be all in in case I could get a better vineyard over here, and if I invest my money really well, you know, well, I think that's a class B vineyard. There's only a couple acres. This one's really big. I'm going to save up for that one. Thank you very much, God. Meanwhile, God says, no, it's not about the vineyard. It's about your heart. It's about your heart and eternal glory. Israel faced similar challenges as the American church trying to get past being consumer-driven with an entitlement mentality. Yet God, being the continual arranger of circumstances and blessing, pours out and vanquishes the foes before Israel and says, let me provide for you. Verse 28, but after they had had rest and they did evil before you, you abandoned them into the hand of your enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiff neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear." Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, did not make an end of them, nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Nehemiah is making appeal to God to understand the failings of their humanity. God, understand how hard it is. It's interesting that in centuries later, God would send his own son and say he'd experienced all kinds of temptations here on earth. 
Nehemiah wouldn't know that God would do this. It's interesting that he prophetically calls out and asks for, God understand, for God's understanding, and God would later literally, fleshly answer that request. Verse 32, Now therefore, O God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love, let not the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, priests, prophets, fathers, and all of your people since the time the kings of Assyria until this day. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law nor paid attention to your commandments and the warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amidst your great goodness, you gave them. And in the large and rich land you have set before them, they did not serve you nor turn from their wicked ways. My next point is that Israel is turning to God for his justice. Israel is turning to God for his justice, even in light of their own sin and disobedience. They're still able to call upon God and his righteousness. One of the most difficult tasks, I would say, is recognizing that God is right in his judgments. God judges Israel through the captivity, and now the Levites would appeal to God's same goodness for a sense of a brighter future. They base their plea on God's unchangeable character and appeal for him during their troubles. The Levitical prayer here was a recommitment to the one whose favor they seek and a recognition of a fresh desire for the covenant promises God had made them. Isaiah 30, 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show you mercy. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. It seems that throughout the history of Christianity, that when God wanted the gospel to sink deeper into the community or spread, he would allow for some hardships amongst the people and wait for them to call out to him. The same can be true for us as individuals, that sometimes we have to come upon hard circumstances to really, really learn to lean into God, right? I mean, like, some of us lean on God like this. And if you took God away, guess what? Not a big deal. When you start to, like, lean into God, that's a whole different kind of faith. And he will show you a whole different kind of adventure. Yet, in the history of Israel, sometimes it took a lot of years for them to learn that lesson. I don't know about you. Have you ever, you ever had a lesson that you finally learned one day? And you look back over the months, years, decades that you could have learned that lesson sooner and all of the price that you paid for not having learned that lesson sooner? There's things like that in the Bible. Don't worry, you're not alone. It happens. It's part of the process. And it's a magnifier of God's grace that when we come to him, even after those hard lessons that we've been that have been so difficult for us to internalize 
and grow from and change into that he still promises us promises us mercy through the process verse 36 the prayer goes on behold we are slaves to this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit its good gifts and behold we are slaves and its rich yield goes to kings whom you've set over us because of our sins they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we're in great distress they're calling out and saying god you've given us these great promises and we see there's people receiving fruit from these great promises lord where is ours see the jews still lived under an empire of a persian king but they longed to live under the god of their ancestors the days have come when the theocracy which God had set up in the nation of Israel with God ruling over the nation would sound so magical compared to the lifestyle that they lived at the time. Yet it was because of their own sins they endured that suffering. It's been, it's been said, it's been said in regards to that, that obedience is God's passport to blessing. Obedience is God's passport to blessing. That if we as a community or as individuals find ourselves in a place longing for God's covenant, seeing others enjoying the fruit of God's covenant and God's faithfulness and his provision in the land, that we're to come back to him with a, with a heart of repentance, to seek joy in him, and to look for obedience in a place where we've had rebellion. So how do we respond to all this? I mean, these, these Old Testament messages that came on a community and were easily discernible based on recorded behavior and a bunch of eyes in the community saying, yes, Lord, this is in fact how we as a community have responded to you. Maybe there's things in our own community that we're learning and saying, hey, we want to hand over these things to you, oh God. We went over some of these things as value statements in a, in a summit that we just had where we said, hey, Lord, here's some things we valued that didn't put you as highest. Lord, we want to repent of those things. We want you to come in to change them, to give us a new heart. God, your scripture tells us you will give us a living heart and get rid of our heart of stone. So, Lord, we ask for you to come and do that. One thing we can do in response is recognize those areas where, where we're not quite in line with God. Even if we're this far from God, we'll be missing out on his blessings. Start to, start to move forward and engage God on those things. Hey, Lord, I realize my heart is hard. I act out in this way. Or, or I don't quite honestly find joy in this part of the life that you've given me or the sense of corporate worship or the sense of reading your word. Lord, what's going on in me? I recognize that that's far from what you'd have for my life. Another thing that you can do is pray about being reconciled to God in those areas of your life. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and to gratify its desires. When you do that, when you start to make and remove from yourself provision that you've given yourself for your own fleshly or sinful behaviors, God will start to move in those areas of your life. You'll probably 
run into some spiritual opposition though i'll just tell you that in advance when you start to move into a place in your heart and your worship where you're working on strongholds that you've held in your life for years don't be surprised if stuff starts to pop up don't be surprised if things that seemed very stable in your life now see unstable if relationships that seemed very constant and supportive now are a little different there's a spiritual war going on so both i would encourage you to engage those strongholds but be aware there's a battle for your heart and your mind you can also start the process of repentance john 1 verses uh, 1 9 sorry first john verses 1 9 says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness god in heaven wants your heart more than anything on this earth he loves you like you're the only one in the world as the uh, structure in our structural things in our community start to give us a sense of stability moving forward as we have leadership teams and groups that are put together that we can sort of rest more assured understanding there's solid people who we know and love carrying our church forward take a breath engage some of the spiritual things that might have been missed as we worried about some of the organizational things now that we're starting to to put people in places and empower them to go do ministry it's also a time like the time in nehemiah once the structure of the city was starting to get rebuilt the people could also address some spiritual needs which had maybe been put on the back burner for a while hebrews 13 8 tells us that god is the same yesterday today and and forever and we can have confidence as we approach him to start to bring spiritual things more and more to the front, to uncover the areas we as a community can hand over to him and ultimately to show himself even more faithful in the days to come. And the thing that we can maybe most do is recognize the glory in his simple message of the gospel. That, hey, we're all fallen short. None of us can do this on our own, meaning... We can't do it without God working in our life. We don't have spiritual eyes on our own. We need his spirit to empower us to even see these things. And we're powerless to manage them on our own. So we need his empowering grace. You know what else we need? Those around us to encourage us, to love us, and support us on the journey. So I'm going to close us to a time in prayer. But have on your heart today the things that you can take to God and the things that we can look to our community to support us in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your steadfast love. You're so faithful even when we're not. We are graced by your presence, your provision, your love. Lord, we lay our lives before you. We ask for you to show yourself strong on our behalf, to rebuild our community, to rebuild our hearts, and to kindle a fire in our hearts unlike one we've ever had before. Lord, we pray all this in your faithful name, and all God's people said, Amen.